Our first reading this morning was from Mark 11, verses 1 to 11, on page 2 of your bulletin if you want to follow along. There we read the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem at the beginning of the week of Passover, the week of his execution. We're turning back to that text now, and it's fitting that we do so having just read chapters 14 and 15, Mark's account of the end of that same week. From Jesus' anointing for burial by a woman at Bethany, through to the actual burial of his dead body. It's fitting that we have the story of Jesus' brutal death by crucifixion fresh in our minds when we read the story of his entry into Jerusalem. That we read Mark 11 knowing what will happen to him once he gets there. It's fitting because Jesus, by the time he arrived in Jerusalem, also knew what was coming. As Mark tells it, Jesus had already predicted his death to his disciples three times. Once in chapter 8, again in chapter 9, and again in chapter 10. And I'll just read that last time out for us now, from Mark 10, 33 and 34. Jesus told the twelve, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. So Jesus knew what would happen to him in Jerusalem, and he went there anyways. He deliberately chose to undergo these things. Not, of course, because he wanted to suffer and die. That's not the case. But he was willing to suffer and die to accomplish the goodwill of his father. We heard his prayer just now in Mark 14, verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The same choice Jesus made on the night of his arrest in the garden to submit his will to the will of the Father he loved and trusted. He was already making that same choice when he decided to go up to Jerusalem in the first place. Even though he knows exactly what it will cost him, Jesus goes to Jerusalem on purpose. And that same sense of deliberate, purposeful action is evident in the very specific way that Jesus chooses to enter Jerusalem. He rides into Jerusalem on a colt, which means a young male horse or donkey. In this case, it's a donkey. Now, Jesus and his disciples have been traveling on foot all around their home region of Galilee for years. And now they've walked from Galilee up to Jerusalem, a walk that would have taken, I think, at least five days, something like that. They aren't alone. We know from chapter 10 of Mark that as they've traveled, they've joined up with a larger caravan of Passover pilgrims, just regular Jewish folks traveling to Jerusalem for the festival. And because they had to be, ancient peasants were expert walkers. Jesus and his disciples are no exception. They can handle a five-day walk on foot. By the time Jesus sends for the colt, verse 1 
tells us that they've already drawn near to Jerusalem, having arrived at Bethany and Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is just the next hill over from the hill on which the Temple of Jerusalem sits. And Bethany and Bethphage are suburban villages on the Jerusalem side of the Mount of Olives. So to walk from Bethany to Bethphage, uh, sorry, to walk from Bethany and Bethphage to Jerusalem's Temple Gate would take something like half an hour. It's a distance of less than two miles. It's such a short walk that Jesus and his disciples find it convenient to stay in Bethany while they're visiting Jerusalem the whole time, as we see in verse 11. So all this is just to say that Jesus could very, very easily have finished the walk, have gone the rest of the way on foot. He was practically already there. He doesn't need a colt. So the purpose of the colt isn't practical. The purpose of the colt is to make a statement. Now, I'm sure Jesus wasn't the first person in history to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey colt or the last. And in and of itself, this isn't that weird a thing to do. If you happen to own a colt and you're going to Jerusalem, it's quite reasonable to ride there on your colt, and that wouldn't set any alarm bells ringing, I don't think. But Jesus doesn't own a colt, and everyone traveling with him knows that. And he acquires this colt in a rather peculiar way, doesn't he? Somehow, he just knows that there's a colt standing there just around the corner in this little village they've just arrived at. And that the owners of this colt will be happy to hand it over to his disciples if they just mention that the Lord has need of it. So what's going on here? Has Jesus maybe arranged this beforehand? It's definitely possible. We know from other gospels that this is not Jesus' first time in Bethany and that he even has friends there. But Mark doesn't tell us anything about it. And Jesus doesn't tell his disciples anything about it. It doesn't seem like they know what's going on. We see the same pattern again in chapter 14, which we just read, when Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead to prepare the place where the Passover meal will be eaten. And he says that they'll know where to prepare the meal by following a man carrying a jar of water. Again, it's not totally clear whether this is a secretly prearranged signal or whether Jesus is exercising some kind of strange predictive powers. We don't know, and it may not have been totally clear to the disciples at the time. Mark doesn't tell us. The point, I think, is that however Jesus sets these things up, on purpose, he's trying to surprise the disciples. Mm -hmm. He's trying to provoke their attention to get them to realize that this is no ordinary week, that something unusual and important is happening. And the unusual way that he produces this colt is a signal that the colt means something. And Jesus points out one other way in which this colt is no ordinary colt. He says to his disciples in verse 2 that this colt is one on which no one has ever sat. The basic meaning of this is that the colt is still a very young animal and no one has broken it in for riding yet. But there's a deeper sense in which no one has ever sat on this colt before. If this is not your first Palm Sunday, 
and you likely know where I'm going with this, that behind Jesus' decision to ride into Jerusalem on a colt is the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Matthew's gospel, telling the same story, makes this connection explicit by quoting that prophecy when he gets to this moment. But already in Mark's account, I think it's very clearly implied that that's what's going on. So what's this prophecy? Well, the prophet Zechariah had preached about 500 years before Jesus, at a time when the Jews had finally returned to their land from a decades-long exile in Babylon. They were just beginning to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Mm -hmm. And that they could do that was, of course, a great blessing from God. But at the same time, there was one problem that nagged at them. If you've been here at all in the last year, mm -hmm. you know that we've been reading our way through First and Second Samuel, which tells, among other things, the story of King David. And you will have heard that in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, the Lord made a gracious promise to David. And this was about another 500 years before Zechariah. The Lord said to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, God promised that there would always be a king from the royal house of David to rule over Israel. Well, the Jews returning from exile in Babylon didn't have a king, certainly not one from the house of David. They had Jerusalem back, the royal city of David, and they were rebuilding the temple that had been built by David's son Solomon, but they had no king. They were still under the Persian Empire, a pagan empire. So where was this king that God had promised them? who would rule as David had done in his best moments, with justice and kindness and with obedience to God. Well, part of what Zechariah prophesied, part of the message he was given by God to give to God's people, spoke to this problem. So here it is, chapter 9, verse 9 of Zechariah's prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The prophecy goes on to specify that this king, this humble king entering Jerusalem on a donkey colt, would save Judah and Israel from all their enemies would put an end to war and establish peace over all the earth and would free prisoners by the blood of God's covenant. So by the time Jesus comes around, a thousand years have passed since David and 500 years have passed since this prophecy. But there still has been no restoration of David's kingdom. The Jews, the Jews, excuse me, are not ruled by the Persians anymore. No, they were replaced by the Greeks, and then they were replaced by the other Greeks, and then the Maccabees, who were Jews at least, but not descendants of David. And then finally the Romans came on the scene. Mm. A lot of things have happened. A lot of people have ridden in and out of Jerusalem 
on war horses, certainly, and probably also on donkeys. But in all of these centuries, no one has ever sat on this colt, on the colt promised by the prophet Zechariah. No king has yet appeared who can bring about the salvation, the peace, and the freedom promised by God to his people. That's where things are at when Jesus very deliberately stops the caravan at the threshold of Jerusalem, their final destination, and sends his disciples to go and bring him a cold. What Jesus is doing is clear to the disciples, and it's clear to the crowd of pilgrims who are with him. He's claiming the prophecy of Zechariah 9 for himself, identifying himself as a king, as that king. He doesn't have to say it with words. In this case, his symbolic action speaks louder than words. Behold, Jerusalem, your king is coming to you on a colt. And the disciples and the crowd get it. In response to what Jesus has done, apparently spontaneously, without any pre-planning, they start to do things, amazing things. First, the two disciples throw their cloaks over the colt to make a seat for the rider. And then the crowd begin to lay their cloaks and to lay leafy branches before him. Earlier, I mentioned that Bethany and Bethphage are less than two miles from Jerusalem. And that's not a very long distance to walk, but it's sure a pretty long distance to cover with cloaks and leafy branches, I would think. I haven't tried it. In verse 9, we see that there are some going before Jesus, walking in front of him as he rides, and others behind him. So I think the scene we're meant to imagine here is that the group in front are continuously laying down cloaks and branches as they advance. And that as Jesus rides slowly over each section of the path, the people behind pick up the material and run it back up front so that it can be used to cover the next section of ground. This would take real effort to do this for the whole length of a half hour walk. Mm. What they're doing is kind of like rolling out the red carpet, right? which we do today for heads of state or movie stars. But this is so much more beautiful and so much more heartfelt. In response to what Jesus is signaling to them about himself, the disciples and the crowd are showing him an incredible honor using the humble materials that are available to them. This carpet of peasant cloaks and of leafy branches is the crowd's way of saying, we are not worthy to walk on the same ground as him, not even to walk on the same ground as his donkey. And as they go before and behind him, the crowd are shouting as well. They're shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. As you may know, like the rest of the New Testament, Mark's gospel is written in Greek. But every once in a while, Mark uses a word or a phrase in Aramaic, the language that was mostly spoken by the Jews in that time and place. 
and Mark will write it down in Greek letters without actually translating it. So, for example, you heard just now in chapter 15, Jesus' final cry on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. There, Jesus is quoting in Aramaic, his native language, from Psalm 22, the same psalm that we read together this morning. And Hosanna is yet another Aramaic quotation from the Psalms, this time from Psalm 118. Literally, it means something like, save, please. But it comes to have a wider range of meaning, expressing not only a request for salvation, but also praise and thanksgiving to the one who brings salvation, to God. And on the lips of the crowd accompanying Jesus into Jerusalem, Hosanna expresses that full range of meaning. They're at once praying for salvation, and even more, rejoicing, because they recognize that the one who will bring salvation is in their presence, that he is bringing salvation to Jerusalem as they speak. They recognize that the one on the colt is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the one anointed by the Lord to carry out his good purposes for his people. By blessing the coming kingdom of our father David, the crowd are hailing Jesus as the true royal son and heir of David, who has come finally to restore the throne that God promised to establish forever. And with the expression, Hosanna in the highest, the crowds are summoning even the heights of heaven, the angels, to come and join in in welcoming this royal savior. The honor that the crowd shows Jesus is amazing, and it's unprecedented in the Gospels. It should amaze us just as much that Jesus allows the crowd to honor him in this way. For most of Mark's gospel, Jesus has been working pretty hard to keep his identity as God's anointed one, the Messiah or Christ, a bit of a secret. As recently as chapter 8, for example, when the disciple Peter finally said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the anointed one. Jesus' response was to strictly charge all the disciples to tell no one about him. So why now is he reversing this policy? Why is he allowing, and not only allowing, but actively inviting and provoking the crowds to publicly honor him as the anointed king? Remember, the crowd is only doing these things, they only know to do these things because of what Jesus has already done. By sending for a cult in this special way, they're responding to his decision to symbolically claim for himself this prophecy in their presence. So why did he do it? Why now? Well, it's certainly not that Jesus just wants to be treated like a king, to enjoy the red carpet treatment and the praises of the crowd and a comfy donkey ride. You and I might be tempted to do something like that, right? To pretend to be something we aren't, just for the attention or for the praise or the power that we would get from that. But that's not why Jesus claims this prophecy. Remember that Jesus knows something the crowds don't. Mm. And he understands something that the disciples, even though they've been told three times, don't understand. 
Jesus knows that the Lord's anointed one is anointed for burial. That the king of Zechariah 9.9 is also the servant of Isaiah 52.53. The man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who will be wounded and pierced, who will be numbered with the transgressors, with murderers like Barabbas and the robbers on either side of him, who will pour out his soul to death. By claiming to be the king of Zechariah 9, Jesus wins for himself half an hour of praise and honor and six hours of hanging to death on the cross. So no, Jesus is not claiming this prophecy for his own benefit. He's doing it for the sake of the crowd, for the sake of his disciples and for us, for you and me. He kept his messianic identity hush-hush while he preached and healed in Galilee because he didn't want people to misunderstand what it meant to be the Messiah. But now that he has arrived at Jerusalem, at the beginning of the week he knows he will die, the time has finally come to show us what being the Messiah really means. Zechariah 9.9 calls the promised king humble. And it's no exaggeration to say that no one is more humble than Jesus. We catch just a little glimpse of this, of Jesus' humility, even in the midst of this royal procession, right? The promised king surely had every right to ride in to what was, after all, his capital city on the finest horse in the land, his path adorned with rich cloth and with wreaths of fine flowers, the chief priests and the wealthy men of the city coming out to meet him on his way and acclaim him, to crown him as king. But Jesus instead borrows a village donkey and is accompanied by a crowd of provincial peasants doing their best to honor him with their simple traveling cloaks and with whatever random branches they can grab as they pass by these fields. No one from Jerusalem comes out to meet him, and the only crown he will get from Jerusalem is his crown of thorns. But Jesus' humility goes far deeper than this. Jesus' whole life, his very being, is actually an expression of a humility more profound than any we can fathom. For Jesus is not merely the royal descendant of David. He's also, and even more fundamentally, as the centurion who stood guard at the cross says in chapter 15, he is truly the son of God. The divine son, existing from eternity at his father's side, being himself in the form of God and equal with God as we read in Philippians 2 this morning. Equal with God. This is the one who chose to fulfill the will of his Father by making himself nothing, by taking the form of a servant, by becoming a true human person 
and dying the true human death, even death on a cross. God's son didn't have to do any of this, but he did it. He did it not for his own sake, but for us. Not according to his own preferences, but according to the gracious will of his loving father. When Jesus' royal procession finally reaches the temple, it seems to evaporate. Jesus enters the temple, and according to verse 11, when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. For many of those accompanying Jesus, and probably for many of us here today, this feels like quite an anticlimax, right? After this dramatic procession up to the temple, Jesus looks around and then goes back the way he came to return the donkey and to go to bed. But consider what is actually happening here. When Jesus enters the temple, he's not just another pilgrim. He's not even just the messianic king, as if that weren't enough. When Jesus enters the temple, it is the presence of God himself who enters the temple, his temple. When Jesus looks around at everything, he's not looking merely with the eyes of a Galilean tourist. He's looking with the human eyes of God, looking around at the temple that was built for the worship of him, but that does not recognize him. He's looking around as judge and as savior. If you're looking for something to do between now and Maundy Thursday, I bet you would find it really interesting, maybe helpful, to read the chapters between the ones we read today. So to finish chapter 11 and go to the end of chapter 13. And if you do that, you'll see that over the next several days, Jesus will return to the temple at least twice. And he'll show his authority over the temple in several shocking ways, by his actions, in his public teaching, and in his private teaching to his disciples. The temple is not only the destination of today's royal procession, it's actually the focus of Jesus' whole last week before his death. And of course, the ultimate sign of Jesus' authority over the temple will come only in the moment of his death. When the curtain of the temple, the barrier between God and his people, was torn in two from top to bottom. And it's not only Jesus' relationship with the temple that reaches its climax at the moment of his death. It's Jesus' whole ministry. The cross is the center of everything that Jesus came into the world to do. It's from the cross that he brings us righteousness, salvation, peace, and freedom. It's on the cross that he rules as king over his people. He chose to enter Jerusalem on a colt for no other reason than to connect the dots for us between the promises of Zechariah 9 and of all of scripture and his humble offering of himself on the cross, which he knew lay just ahead. The one who humbled himself in this way 
is worthy not only of a half hour long parade, he's worthy of every honor that heaven and earth can give. He's worthy of bearing the name that is above every name. The crucified and risen king is worthy of much more than either the pilgrims who were with him that day, or we who stand and sit in his presence here now can possibly offer him. But in his humility and in his love for the ones he came to save, for us, he accepted their offering and he will accept whatever you choose to offer him today. Amen.